On this episode of The Most Notorious Podcast, the 1978 Scottsdale, Arizona murder of Hogan's hero star, Bob Crane. If it were a jealous husband or a jealous boyfriend, there would have been a row. There, Crane, first of all, wouldn't have willingly let any man in that he didn't know. Secondly, there would have been a struggle. That didn't happen. Crane was killed in the fetal position, dead asleep. He was asleep when he was bludgeoned. So whoever was in that apartment was in there either willingly from Crane or someone snuck into the apartment. Welcome, everyone, to The Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. I am so pleased to have as my guest today, John Hook. He has been an investigative journalist for 35 years and is the co-anchor of Fox 10 News in Phoenix, Arizona. And he is here to talk about his critically acclaimed book, Who Killed Bob Crane? Thank you so much for joining me today. Eric, my pleasure. I appreciate it. It's a it's a fascinating case. It's a great true crime story, and I, I love to tell it. That that's great. So I'm sure we'll get into how you connected with Bob Crane Jr. and how this all began. Right. But before we talk about that, um, there may be listeners out there who, for whatever reason, are not familiar with Bob Crane and Hogan's Heroes. Would you mind talking a bit about Bob Crane's background and his ascent to celebrity status? Well, Crane was a really accomplished radio personality. He grew up in Connecticut, and um, he ended up on the radio in Connecticut and really started uh, making a lot of headway uh, doing comedic morning radio on the East Coast. And people in New York started taking notice of him, Eric, in the uh, 50s when he when he got going. And he was actually his signal was competing with the big stations in New York City. And people were saying, who is this guy Crane? He's siphoning off some of our listeners. So uh, New York started the CBS affiliate in New York started getting a little concerned about this guy becoming a competitor out of Bristol and he had even done some time in Hornell, New York, but but he was um, he was in Connecticut in Bridgeport, Bristol, uh, Hornell, small market. But people were hearing him in New York City because some of it bled over. So they said, you know, we got to get this guy out of here. Maybe there's a spot for him in L.A. So in 1956, KNX, which is a huge station in L.A., uh, hired Crane to become their guy, and his. His show instantly caught on out in L.A. It was a madcap show. Crane played the drums. He was a very accomplished drummer. Uh, had even played in the Connecticut Symphony for a brief time as a young person, really young guy. So he was accomplished on the drums. He played drums. He did voices. He would spoof his own commercials. He would do an Avis commercial, and there would be the sound of a car crash. You know, he loved doing that kind of stuff. He was very irreverent. And... Um, People started to really love this guy in L.A. And for about 10 years from 
Uh, it was probably 1956 to 1965. He was on KNX, which was a blowtorch station in L.A., doing this madcap morning show. He started to get the best of the best in terms of guests. You know, he'd get Bob Hope. He'd get, um, oh, man, he, he got everybody. He got Jack Parr. He got, he got Marilyn Monroe. He got uh, Ronald Reagan. You know, he got everybody. And the show became a go-to, and this got the attention of producers in Hollywood and television because they were listening to this guy going to work in the morning. So they're like, this crane guy, you know, we gotta give, we gotta, we gotta find out what he's got, you know? And then they find out he's a really handsome leading man type. And he was starting to dabble in television. He was, he was getting spots on the, on the, um, Oh, he, he was on a couple of shows early on, but it was really the Mary Tyler Moore, Dick Van Dyke, the Dick Van Dyke show. He started doing guest spots there. And then he gets a screen test for Hogan's uh, in 1965, and he ends up getting cast in that show. And for a while, believe it or not, he did Hogan's Heroes and radio because he wasn't sure the TV show was going to work out. Well, as it turned out, Hogan's Heroes lasted longer than World War II itself. So it, it was a pretty good choice. And, um, you know, he just, he rose through radio, he honed his comedic skills on radio, and it translated beautifully to television. There's this charisma about him on screen. He kind of plays this straight character in a world of lunatics. (laughs) Uh, But he was just so charming. And that charm extended into his real life, right? No doubt. Uh, You know, he was... He was catting around. He was a married guy with kids, um, you know, but he started catting around even back in his days on the East Coast. But when he got to L.A., it was like it was like landing on the moon. You know, you've got the palm trees, the sunshine, beautiful women everywhere. He's starting to dabble in television, doing guest spots, and he's meeting beautiful women. So his addiction to pornography that became an obsession that ended up, frankly, probably killing him um, in a roundabout way. And we'll get into that. You know, it was it was kind of the perfect storm. Um, here was a guy in a world where he had access to women and it became easy pickings, for lack of a better phrase. And uh, he took advantage of it. The main relationship in this story is between Crane and a man named John Carpenter. It seems like a very unlikely duo. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, can you tell us about how they met and, and how they developed their relationship over time? Well, yeah, John Carpenter, Eric, was, was you know, he's been portrayed as this loser character in Autofocus, uh, Schrader's film that starred Greg Kinnear and William Defoe as John Carpenter. It's a great film, and, and a lot of it's very true to form, but... They kind of portray him as a loser, and he really wasn't. He was a self-made guy, grew up on an Indian reservation, became very crafty and street smart. He was part Native American, uh, grew up in Southern California, dabbled in in roller derby, if if you remember that whole thing. It was like all-star wrestling on skates. So he had a little bit of performer in him, but he got into the video world, um, becoming the first major home video salesman for Sony in the 60s. You know, we take this stuff for granted now, but this was really new technology. And they were big, bulky machines, but he was selling them to the likes of Red Skelton and um, even Elvis. Uh, He told the story that he he sold a a, a unit to Elvis. 
he met Richard Dawson, who was um, uh, Newkirk on the Hogan's Heroes show, Peter Newkirk. So he meets Richard Dawson. Richard Dawson later went on to Family Feud fame as the host of that show. You, you might know him from that. But he sold Dawson this equipment, and they became friends. And then Dawson introduces Carpenter to Crane on the set of Hogan's Heroes in 1965 or 66. It may have been 66. But they struck up a fast friendship because of their love of photography, their love of women, and their love of electronics. So they became really good friends. And Carpenter was always straddling uh, Dawson and Crane. There was tension between Dawson and Crane because Dawson was a much more trained actor uh, out, of, out of Great Britain and felt that he should have been the star of the show. So there was a little bit of always creative tension between Bob Crane and Richard Dawson on the show and off the show. So Carpenter would kind of minimize his relationship to Crane, to, Car to uh, Dawson, and he'd do the same thing, you know, with Crane. He'd minimize his relationship with Dawson to Crane. He was playing both sides because he loved, Carpenter loved to be around famous people. But he also knew how to hang with famous people and not overdo it. He generally knew how to navigate that world because he'd been around a lot of famous people. So he could handle it. And so stars didn't feel kind of threatened by him or felt like he was a guy who was uh, starstruck. But Carpenter was kind of a hanger-on a little bit. But he hit it pretty well. He would often introduce himself to young ladies they met at bars. And by the way, it, it didn't sound like either of them drank very much. But they would go to places to pick up women. And Carpenter, during these outings, would introduce himself as Bob's manager and talk himself up quite a bit. He would. He would. And he'd, he'd name drop about all the famous people he knew. You know, Crane had a famous saying. Um, he said, well, I don't drink and I don't smoke. Two out of three ain't bad. And you know what the third was. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so... It was sex for, for Crane. I mean, Crane, um, there's a, there's a scene in autofocus, something where they say, you know, a day without sex is like a day without sunshine. Crane wanted to have sex every day with a different woman if he could do it, if he could pull it off. And, um, he often did and sometimes more than one. So how elaborate was this film production hobby? What equipment did they have and what were they doing with it exactly? Well, you know, Carpenter sold Crane this gear, and it was Sony gear, and it was generally two uh, big, bulky um, cassette decks, big, you know, three-quarter-inch cassette decks. And Crane would take them on the road with him. He started, you know, he was, he was photographing, still photographing his sexual conquests. He had so many pictures, I can't even tell you, of women he had bedded, and, and, and he took pictures of them. He was cataloging his conquests. I think because somewhere in the recesses of his mind, he, he wanted to document it, but he also knew that someday it would end. You know, he'd be an older man, and I think he wanted to have a catalog of all this stuff. So it started with still photography, but then when video became presented to him, it was like throwing gas on a fire. I mean, he was then really nuts. He was into pornography anyway and would go to Triple um, X movie theaters and stuff. He did that a lot. So he started figuring out, well, I can star in my own film. So he would set up a tripod, put a camera on it, uh, roll it. He would have a TV in the front room. 
And the girls, by the way, all knew that he was doing it. He was not surreptitiously recording them. First of all, the, the equipment was way too bulky for that back then. This stuff was just massive. The decks looked like suitcases. The camera looked like something off a Soyuz space capsule. Um, so he'd have a camera set up, and he would entice these women to take off their clothes in front of the camera. This was a novelty back then. This is this is Kim Kardashian and Paris Hilton sex tapes before selfies. And the women could see themselves on the TV in the living room, and they would gladly do it. He was not forcing them, coercing them, cajoling them. Uh, he would compliment them, and he would seduce them to get, get them to take their clothes off on camera. And the women thought it was a kick. Much of the story that you tell in your book takes place after Bob Crane had reached his celebrity peak. Uh, he was still having fun, uh, fast approaching the age of 50, and he found himself in Scottsdale, Arizona. Can you talk about his, his personal circumstances at this point, what he was doing there? Yeah, he was um, performing at the Windmill Dinner Theater. He had started to do the dinner theater circuit to pay the bills. He was still getting guest spots on Love Boat, you know, little game show spots, maybe even Hollywood Squares. I, I think he did do an appearance on Hollywood Squares. So he was getting some guest spots, and he was doing some Disney films, Super Dad. Um, but his star had reached its zenith with Hogan's Heroes, and he was so identified as that guy, as Hogan, Colonel Hogan, that it complicated things a little bit. And it was also starting to get out in the Hollywood world, and particularly with Disney, that he was catting around and, and doing some pretty kinky stuff. Uh, and this was potentially harmful to his career. And so this is the question, you know, that, that everybody has. Was he starting to change his ways when he was murdered? That's what his son, Robert Jr., claims, because they were living together in an apartment because Bob was getting divorced from his first wife, and about to marry uh, one of the stars on Hogan's Heroes and had married her um, literally on the set after a show, uh, Fraulein Hilda. So uh, he married her. And so, you know, his weakness, his Achilles heel, the sexual addiction was starting to get known in Hollywood. And for Disney, that's that's not a very good fit. And so they were worried about it. And I and the question is, was he changing his ways? But at any rate. He's performing in dinner theaters, still able to meet women. He would invite them after the show to go have a drink. If he met someone at a bar after the show, he would invite them to the show and give them tickets, uh, put them on the front row, and kind of wow them with his celebrity. And he was still Hogan. He'd walk into a bar, everybody would yell out, Hogan, Hogan. He was, he was riding that still. And so it made picking up women very easy. He was here in Scottsdale as he went from city to city, for a one-month tour at the Windmill Dinner Theater, performing Beginner's Luck. That's why he was in Scottsdale in the summer of 1978, in June. Uh, he was about ready to wrap up that show. They were in their final week when he was found murdered in his apartment in Scottsdale. And as usual, John Carpenter would figure out a way to do a little business wherever Crane was, meet him out on the road, whether it be Dallas or Cincinnati, or Houston, or Phoenix, he would meet him on the road for a few days every month, do very little business, write it off, at the time he was working for Akai, 
he would write it off as a business expense. And basically the entire trip was trying to bed women. So you suggest in your book that Bob Crane was finally starting to grow a little bit tired of John Carpenter, uh, didn't need him so much anymore uh, for his technical expertise. Would you say that that was true? That That's a perfect way of putting it, Eric. Yes, that's exactly what Crane was now as adept at this technology, and it was advancing too. It was getting a little more consumer friendly as time went on. He didn't need... John Carpenter to be the troubleshooter anymore. He didn't even need him to be the cameraman because Crane had tripods set up all over the place. Um, and one of them may have ended up killing him. That's what police believe. But at any rate, he didn't need Carpenter. And uh, his son, Bob Jr., told me that, that, and he testified in court when Carpenter eventually went on trial in the 90s. He said that his dad had told him before the trip to Scottsdale, he said, Carpenter's becoming a pain in the ass. He's clinging on, and I need to make some changes. And Bob Crane was still worried about his career. As you say, he was approaching 50, so there was a reevaluation of where he was in life. And I think Crane, um, aside from the, the obsession with women, he was very worried about whether his career could continue. You know, he had a very nice career going between radio and television, and he was he was kind of thinking, you know, this thing might wane. I'm not leading man material anymore. I'm approaching 50. I've got to kind of reinvent myself. He was he really wanted to be Jack Lemon. That's that was his guiding light. He thought Jack Lemon was something he could be, that he could pull that off and still get big movie roles, even as he got older and be very appealing and endearing to the audience. So that's what he wanted to do. But Carpenter, he felt, was becoming an albatross and. You know, he didn't really enjoy anymore having him come out on the road with him. And this was one of the things that defined that trip was that for the first time when Crane picked up Carpenter at Sky Harbor Airport on the Sunday of the week that Crane died, he picked him up and he deposited him at uh, the Sunburst Hotel down the street, literally 30 seconds, Eric, from Crane's apartment. But he would not, on this trip, stay with Crane. And that was very significant because they had always stayed together in Crane's apartment that was given to him by the Windmill Dinner Theater wherever he went. They had Windmill Dinner Theaters sprinkled all over the country. And wherever he went, he had an apartment that they would rent out for him. It was a two-bedroom, so Carpenter could hang there. Uh, it was very easy. But on this trip, they did not stay together. And... That is a pretty surefire sign that something in their relationship had changed, that Crane did not want him around. Not that much. But he wasn't the, the type of person that could just cut someone out completely, right? He, he had to do it gently. So Crane was slowly sort of trying to cut off the gravy train, but he didn't want to do it too abruptly. So they were still seeing each other, still hanging out, um, including on the evening of June 28th, 1978. Yes, and two days before his murder, the two had a very heated discussion at a restaurant in Scottsdale. And uh, it was witnessed by several of the staff who were at the, at the restaurant. They said that the two were engaged in a very heated discussion. Crane was very intense. Carpenter was looking upset and bewildered and not taking whatever ha was happening very well. 
And people believe, the police believe, the detectives believe that this was the quote-unquote breakup conversation where Crane was telling him, look, I know you're here right now, but we're going to, I don't want this to continue. I'm not comfortable with you coming out wherever I am and just dropping in. Um, you're cramping my style. I don't want to continue this. And that Carpenter was taking it very badly. Now, you know, Carpenter's attorney, Stephen Avila, says that's nonsense. That Carpenter had plenty of people, stars that he could glom onto to pick, help pick up women. He didn't need, he didn't need Crane necessarily. But a lot of people believe that, you know, the gravy train, as you put it, was coming to an end and that Carpenter could see that, that the fun they were having out on the road where Carpenter was kind of getting the seconds, if you will. It's a crude way to put it, but that's kind of what would happen. The two of them would go into a bar. Crane would pick up a woman and Carpenter would be left with the maybe less attractive girlfriend of, of whoever Crane was going after. And so Carpenter was seeing the gravy train coming to an end and did, didn't take it well. And so Crane, Crane's term that he always used was, um, I don't like to make waves. So he was trying to cut Carpenter loose, as you say, in a gentle, civilized way, without it being a big deal. But police think it was a very big deal. We will be back after these brief messages. Hello all, Eric here. So you can't fully understand the moment we're living in without knowing where we've been. On every episode of NPR's Throughline, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? If you are interested in the stories behind today's news stories or learning how the past informs the present, you're going to love the Throughline podcast from NPR. I've listened to and enjoyed many episodes of Throughline over the years and learned about a number of historical figures that I had never heard about before. And I've gotten insights into well-known historical events. Throughline approaches these figures and events from really interesting new angles, often telling a completely different story than the one that's typically told. Here's an example, an episode I particularly enjoyed. It's called The Lord of Misrule, and it's about a man named Thomas Morton, an early New England colonist who butted heads with William Bradford, governor of the Plymouth Colony, and Morton would end up publishing a book critical of the Puritans, a book that is considered to be the first book ever banned in American history. So, let Throughline take you back in time to the source of the stories filling your feed. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Hey all, it's Eric. So eating better is easy with Factors scrumptious ready-to-eat meals. Don't feel like prepping, cooking, or cleaning and tired of takeout? Every Factor meal is fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted, and ready to go in just two minutes. There are 35 different options to choose from each week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is really flexible for busy schedules, too. Get as much or as little as you need each week. Pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. There are breakfast and midday bite options, too, like pancakes, smoothies, and more. And, of course, made with premium ingredients. And Factor has done the math. It's less expensive than takeout, and each meal dietitian approved to be nutritious. The other day, I downed the salsa shredded chicken thighs with sweet potatoes and Southwest veggie medley. 
The perfect amount of spice, I thought, and really, really delicious. So head to factormeals.com slash notorious50 and use code notorious50 to get 50% off. That's code notorious50 at factormeals.com slash notorious50 to get 50% off. I highly recommend Factor and really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Cheers. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. Yeah, if you wouldn't mind, could you share the story of their last evening together, uh, Bob's last evening on Earth, maybe the story that, that John Carpenter told police anyway, and I think you write that it started with Carpenter going to watch Bob perform at his show. Yes. Well, the two of them uh, departed Crane's apartment um, on the 28th, the night of the 28th, uh, for the performance of Beginner's Luck. Crane was always running late, would get to the stage door, you know, right before showtime. He had kind of, you know, this was the show he could do it in his sleep. So he wasn't particularly motivated every night to do the show, but he, he gave it his level best. Uh, Carpenter on that particular night would sit in the front row at the VIP table. They went actually in Crane's car that night from from uh, the Winfield Place apartment where uh, Crane was was living. Carpenter was right down the street. They met up and they took Crane's car to the theater. Crane did the show. Carpenter sat in the front row. And when they when the show was concluding, they went out to Crane's car after Crane said his goodbyes, you know, to everybody. And he had a flat, uh, flat tire. And this is a little weird on the night of your murder that, you know, was somebody trying to disable his car so that they could whack him? You know, this, this is what police wondered uh, looking back on it. At any rate, instead of getting out all the material out of the trunk to change the tire, Carpenter and Crane drove to the Arco, which was about 300 yards away from the Windmill Dinner Theater, right across the street, Shea Boulevard and Scottsdale Road. I live literally 10 minutes from there right now in Scottsdale. And they just had the guy put the spare on. He didn't want to deal with it. Crane said, I'll come back tomorrow and pick it up. So some people think that that was a real curious thing that happened. You know, did somebody disable his tire to try to get him in the dark at the windmill in the back parking lot, get Crane, you know, kneeling over a tire change and then would kill him. And was it Carpenter who let the air out of the tire? Maybe an intermission. Who knows? It was a weird oddity. It was a weird part of the story. 
But at any rate, they ended up going back to Crane's apartment after the show. Um, Crane had a very heated argument with his soon-to-be ex-wife. They were in the middle of a nasty divorce. And he got in a very heated phone call at the apartment. And after that phone call concluded, Crane came out. And he said, that woman, that woman, he was furious. He said, let's go, let's go see, let's go listen to some music. You know, let's pick up some women, code word. So Carpenter and Crane headed out to a night spot in Scottsdale where they met up with um, uh, Carol Newell, who was a young girl, very attractive. Crane was going to meet another woman, Carolyn Beret, who he had met a couple of weeks earlier and had tried to bed her, but she wasn't having it. She was a little older. They ended up, all four of them, at the cafe at the Sunburst Hotel where Carpenter was staying. They all ended up driving there and met there and had dinner. Uh, well, breakfast. This is what Crane liked to do at one or two in the morning, have breakfast there. So that's what they did. And that's where all four of them assembled. Carpenter thought he was going to get lucky. Finally, he had never scored during the week that he'd been in Scottsdale. So the whole trip had been a bust. Carpenter was getting frustrated that he wasn't picking up any women. Crane was trying to bed uh, Carolyn Beret, but she wasn't having any of it. And as they left the the cafe that night, the, the coffee shop, Carpenter said something to the effect, I'll see you later or I'll see you tomorrow. The plan was for Crane to drive Carpenter to the airport that next morning for Carpenter to fly back to L.A. And Crane was going to finish his run of beginner's luck and move on to the next town, which I think was Albuquerque. At any rate, uh, Carpenter tried to pick up the girl that they'd met at the bar earlier that night. He, he went, he took her back to the Sunburst Hotel and tried to get her to sleep with him, but she didn't want to. And she said, you got to take me home. I've got to get up early for work the next day. So Carpenter drove her home. He didn't push it. He drove her home, went back to the hotel. Crane went to his apartment because he struck out with Carolyn Beret. So he ended up back alone at his apartment. And the irony of all this is that if either one of them had scored that night, this murder might have never happened because they would have been occupied. But the theory is that Carpenter that night, when he struck out, either called Crane or went right to his apartment, saw that Carolyn Beret's car was not there, knew that Crane was alone, knocked on the door, knew that Crane would let him in, and he was going to ostensibly wait for Crane the next morning, and it was only a few hours at that point because it was already 2.30 in the morning. He'd just wait in Crane's apartment and hang out until Crane took him to the airport the next morning. But that never happened. Carpenter ended up taking a cab to the airport, the plan that was clearly outlined in, in, in Crane's diary on his bedside table, it said, John leaves 10 a.m. He was going to take him to the airport. That was the plan. And that did not happen. And obviously, it couldn't happen because Bob Crane was dead. The next day, Bob Crane's body was found by his co-star, right? And among the strange things that, that happened that day, Bob Crane Jr. got a call from John Carpenter out of the blue. Right. And I get into this in detail in, in my book, Who Killed Bob Crane? And this is this is all documented. Uh, Carpenter, you know, he flies back to California in a rush, deposits his rental car at the uh, Sunburst Hotel that morning, drops it, leaves it there. He had gotten it at Sky Harbor but, but or, or at the hotel and he left it there. He takes a cab to the airport 
And then Victoria Berry, uh, his co-star, Crane's co-star, goes and knocks on the apartment door um, in Scottsdale, Crane's apartment. They were going to do an overdub from, this, from the show Beginner's Luck because she was trying to get some other work in Hollywood at the time. He was going to help her do an overdub of a voiceover at his apartment at 2 p.m. that afternoon. She arrived and knocked on the door. Crane wasn't there. But she, she saw his car, so she knew he was there. She thought, oh, he's in, the, he's in the pool in the back. So she just reflexively turned the door handle, and after knocking several times and Crane never answered, the door opened, and she entered a completely darkened apartment. All the blinds are pulled. All the drapes are pulled. And she's calling out, Bob, Bob. She finally pushes open the door to his bedroom and sees a figure lying in bed that she thinks is a woman because of these dark streaks on the pillow. She thinks it's hair. And she realizes this person is dead. They are not moving. And she thinks it's a woman who probably killed herself, somebody that Bob was dating, or she got jealous, or whatever it might have been. That was the first thing that flashed in her mind. She didn't even know it was a male form. Totally dark. She's panicked. At any rate, um, they call the police. Paramedics arrive. The person is dead. She doesn't know who it is. She doesn't know that it's Bob. She actually thinks when she finds out that it may be a man in bed, she thinks it might be John Carpenter. But she's not sure because the face is disfigured from being beaten uh, with an object. So the police come. She, you know, it's really hot outside. It's 104, 105, 106, somewhere in there. And she's they decided to, to do, you know, the, the discussion with her and take her statement inside the apartment where the murder happened. You know, the body is in the back of the apartment in a bedroom. So I think the cops felt, well, we can bring her in here and do a statement at the kitchen table. And it's not going to disturb what really is the crime scene. That was not a great move. Um, and Carpenter's defense attorney took that apart at trial. But at any rate, the phone rings when they're taking Victoria Berry's statement. And who is it on the phone? It's John Carpenter calling Bob Crane's apartment, saying, is Bob around? And Victoria, and, and Victoria says, you know, it's Victoria Berry, you know, from the show. Uh, Bob's not here. And then the detective, Ron Dean, takes the phone away from her and says, we've got an a investigation going on at the apartment. He doesn't divulge what it involves. And Carpenter never asks, never asks, why are you guys there? And that, police thought, was very curious. Well, it turns out Carpenter was not only on the phone calling Crane's apartment after the murder, but he called the Windmill Dinner Theater asking if Bob was around. Police think he was fishing for information on whether Crane's body had been discovered. He called the Windmill Dinner Theater saying, is Bob around, knowing full well that Bob Crane would not be there in the middle of the afternoon. Crane, as I pointed out earlier, would show up right before the show and not a moment before. So there would be no reason for him to be at the Windmill. So Carpenter was policefully fishing. During that time, he also calls Bob Jr., Bob's son, and says, hey, uh, you know, I got back from L.A., everything's fine, we had a great trip, and, uh, you know, if you need anything, let me know. And Bob Jr. was really taken aback by this phone call, because Carpenter had never done that before. Carpenter would call before a trip, maybe, and say, hey, I need a cable for a camera, can you grab it? Because, again, Bob Crane and his son were living together. Can you grab this cable, I'm going to come by and pick it up. But he never called him after a trip. So Bob Jr. found this very odd. He told me, he said he literally did one of those when he hung up. 
He said, I kind of looked at the phone like, what was that all about? He got a very weird feeling, such a weird feeling that he actually called his father's apartment. He just got an inkling that something was weird. He called his dad's apartment. Victoria Berry again picked up the phone, the instruction of the detective. And Bob Jr. said, is my dad there? And Victoria Berry, having witnessed this horror show, finding a dead body that might be Bob Crane in the back of the apartment, she's a good actress. She said, no, Bob's not here. Uh, he stepped out, and I'll tell him he called. And Bob Jr. said, great, you know, tell him I called. And that was it. Then the phone rings again, and it's Carpenter again, calling the apartment a second time, offering up all this information about how he had seen Crane the night before, Crane was going to take him to the airport, but Carpenter said he told him, no, I know you're busy that morning. You've got a photo shoot, so don't worry about it. I'll take myself to the airport, and I'll see. I'll call you when I get back. This, to the police, was a very odd thing, and they felt it was the killer returning telephonically to the apartment and, and revisiting the crime scene. And it would be hard to argue. I mean, it, it is a very odd circumstance, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Would you tell us how Bob Crane was killed? Well, this was another oddity that complicated the case. The medical examiner down here at the time, Heinz Karnichnig, with a heavy accent, uh, they did, they actually took video, not only photographs of the crime scene, but there was a crude black and white video taken by Scottsdale police. They had just gotten one of these cameras themselves. You know, again, this is new technology back in the in the 70s. So they actually videotaped the crime scene. And you see Karnichnik get up on the bed and shave Bob Crane's battered head to see what inflicted the blows that killed him. This, You know, you do not inject yourself in the middle of a crime scene with evidence and uh, blood evidence and hair evidence. He climbed up in the middle of the crime scene which contaminated the crime scene. That was a terrible move. But again, everybody knew this was a this was the biggest celebrity murder that Arizona had seen. So obviously, Karnichnik was breaking protocol because he was curious. Shaves Crane's head, and on the tape you see him, and I've watched this tape many times, and you see them reveal these two blows, horizontal blows to Crane's temporal area. And he says, there's clearly two blows here. And this is what killed Crane. And they later would determine, police determined later, it actually took till the 90s to figure this out. They think it was that a tripod, a camera tripod that was missing from Crane's apartment. They knew it was missing because in Crane's own sex videos, there were two Tripods, the one that he was shooting on, which you knew was there, a quick set junior tripod. And there was another twin of that in the background that could hold the still camera. But that was missing from Crane's apartment. He had two of them when he was in Dallas. He had two of them when he was in Cincinnati. He had two of them when he was in Scottsdale. But when they searched the apartment, there was only one. And so that became the leading theory that that was the murder weapon. I know a lot of defenders of John Carpenter forward the theory that it could have been a jealous, angry uh, boyfriend or husband. 
I'm sure Bob Crane left a lot of those in his, his wake through his sexual escapades. But, but one of the interesting things is that he always kept his doors locked. And as you just mentioned, she walked in through an unlocked door. And there was no sign of forced entry at all. Exactly right. Which pointed to somebody coming to the apartment that night that Crane knew and was comfortable enough in the middle of the night to let in. That becomes a pretty small list. It's either a woman that he wants to have sex with. Who knows why Carpet or Crane opened the door that night, but he certainly could see through the peephole who it was. And if it were Carpenter, again, don't make waves, Crane's mantra, he would have let Carpenter in the apartment. And Carpenter, if it was him, may have said to him, hey, look, I'm just going to hang out. I can't sleep. I'm going to hang out in the apartment until we go in the morning. And Crane, who was found when he was dead in boxer shorts, which is very significant because Crane always slept in the nude. When he was with a woman, he was always naked in bed. He was found in bed wearing boxer shorts. So if it were a woman, he would not have had boxer shorts on. Crane only wore boxer shorts when somebody else was around. So the theory becomes Carpenter knocks on the door that night. Crane, thinking it might be Carolyn Bure coming back, having second thoughts and maybe wanting to have sex with him, goes to the door, sees it's Carpenter, and it's like, ah, here he he is again, but opens the door and lets him in. But he's wearing boxer shorts because he doesn't know who's there. If it were a jealous husband or a jealous boyfriend, there would have been a row. Crane, first of all, wouldn't have willingly let any man in that he didn't know. Secondly, there would have been a struggle. That didn't happen. Crane was killed in the fetal position, dead asleep. He was asleep when he was bludgeoned. So whoever was in that apartment was in there either willingly from Crane or someone snuck into the apartment. And as I point out in my book, Who Killed Bob Crane, that's highly unlikely because the only other entrance into the apartment was through the Arcadia door, which is where all the video equipment was. These big, huge decks covered the Arcadia door, and there was a tangle of cords and electronics. If you came through that door when it's dark, you would have tripped over this stuff. You would have made noise, and Crane was a notoriously light sleeper. He would have heard it. He would have awakened. And coming through the door, you know, that door was double locked from the inside. And it was open when Victoria Berry went over there that day and discovered his body. Whoever killed Crane was in there probably willingly. Crane let them in and they left through the front door and left it unlocked. So John Carpenter was questioned by police. How do you feel he handled himself under the bright light of interrogation? I think really well. Um, There were two interrogations, one of them two days after the murder, the other one two weeks after the murder in Los Angeles. Police were zeroing in on Carpenter. They knew that he was the last person to see Crane alive, so they really focused in on him. Uh, Carpenter willingly, the, the, the cops... You know, the cops flew out to L.A. two days after the murder to interview Carpenter. They wanted to talk to him. Carpenter, by the way, had been staying with Richard Dawson from Hogan's Heroes fame. Peter Newkirk, he was staying at Dawson's house 
This is a little bit of an odd thing. Cops found this very interesting. Why wasn't Carpenter living, you know, with his girlfriend, which he had in L.A.? Why wasn't he back at the apartment with his girlfriend? He somehow decides to go and hang out with Dawson for several days, almost as if he was kind of hiding out, wanted to drop off the radar, didn't want to be easily found, maybe wanted a little protection of celebrity around him. At any rate, he was interviewed by cops in L.A., and, uh, you know, they, they talked to him, and they said, you know, we need to talk to you. We want to fly you back to Scottsdale. And they flew back to Scottsdale and did an interview there. And I've listened to these tapes. You know, we had access to all the evidence, and I go through all the physical evidence in my book, Who Killed Bob Crane? And it was unbelievable, Eric, to go through that evidence. The, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office let me go through everything that they had connected to the case, including, of course, the blood evidence, which we'll get into. But, you know, to have access to all that was just amazing. And to be able to listen to Carpenter being interrogated. And I, in the book, I included those two interrogations verbatim because I think for the, for the reader, it's really important to kind of get the context of where John Carpenter's head was at. And also, it goes in great detail, the relationship between the two. And I think that's really important to kind of have that in there. So I put the verbatims of the transcripts of those tapes, but I've listened to them. And Carpenter was calm. You know, you can tell they're starting to zero in on him. And at the end of the first interview, you know, he's like, look, I will do whatever you need. I'll, I'll help you in any way you want. He was a little worried, though, that they were starting to focus on him. But, but he was willing to even give a sample of his own blood. They wanted a sample of his blood to match it against blood that had been found in John Carpenter's rental car. And he cooperated. He said, I'll give it. And they went to the hospital right down the street from Scottsdale PD. He gave a sample willingly, which I had handled. That was one of the samples we sent to Cellmark, Bodie Cellmark Forensics uh, in Lorton, Virginia, and had it you know, retested because we were trying to find out whose blood was this in John Carpenter's rental car. Because that's really the linchpin of the case. Yeah. I, I do want to ask you about that. So there was blood splatter in the car's interior. Why would Bob Crane's blood have been in John Carpenter's car if, if Crane had been bludgeoned in his own bed? The, the theory was that Carpenter was in Crane's apartment that night, which was early morning hours of June 29th, 1978 probably sometime between 2.30 and 3.30 in the morning, based on stomach contents at Crane's autopsy. They, that's when they kind of affixed the time of death. It can never be certain, but at any rate, the working theory is that Carpenter was in there and reflexively, as a video salesman, started looking around when he knew Crane was asleep in his own bed, started looking around for something to take him out with, and reflexively grabbed a camera tripod. Now this would have been um, collapsed, not fully extended. So now it's like a baseball bat in his clutches with a very heavy five pound head on that tripod made of metal that if you whip, whip that on somebody with some force, you could kill him. So the theory is that Carpenter hit him with two wicked blows and then cleaned up in the apartment and carried the tripod out, probably wrapped in a towel, and deposited it in the passenger side 
of his Chrysler Cordoba rental car, and as he propped it up against the passenger door, as he as he accelerated and braked, the tripod left streaks and smears of blood on the passenger side door, on the leather, vinyl actually, on the door handle, and on the felt material that was part of the door assembly on the interior. And this blood, you know, only only days after the murder, after they seized Carpenter's rental car, they found it. They tested the blood, and it comes back B positive. Now, guess who's B positive? Bob Crane. B positive is rare blood type, found in only 9% of the population. So you can imagine where police are, are going with this. They've got now John Carpenter, who disappears the day of Crane's murder, blood in Carpenter's car that matches the blood type of the victim. But in 1978, there's no DNA. DNA is still, you know, 15, 20 years off. So they've got blood typing, and that's good, but you don't know for sure that it's Bob Crane's blood. And that's where we came in. In 19, well, in 2016, the, it had been tested in 1990s, the blood in the car, when they got ready to put Carpenter on trial, finally. Uh, it took 16 years to put Carpenter on trial, but they finally did. And one of the things that they were looking at was DNA. Now, remember, O.J. Simpson is happening right around the same time frame. Carpenter went on trial right when O.J. Simpson was happening. And, in fact, the lab we used to test is the same lab that tested it originally and tested the blood for Jean Benet Ramsey and OJ Simpson. So this is the best, one of the best labs in, in the world. So we went to extremes to try to get answers, uh, to match that blood, not only to say it's Bob Crane's blood type, but to say that is actually Bob Crane's blood in John Carpenter's car, which means, I mean, Okay, you could maybe explain it some way, but that, that, to anybody, any reasonable person, that would be case closed. And that was actually the working title of my book, uh, before we got the results back, <laughs> which changed the whole dynamic of this entire thing. We'll be back momentarily. And we are back. So the crime happened in 1978. Uh, finally a trial in the early 90s. Why didn't prosecutors go after Carpenter right away? I mean, there was a lot of circumstantial evidence, although no murder weapon, of course. If they had taken him to trial then, do you think they would have gotten a conviction? I do. I think blood type of the victim in Carpenter's car, Carpenter's the last person to see him, Carpenter had a motive but the problem was the prosecutors, Chuck Heider and then later Tom Collins, they were skittish. They, they, they wanted a murder weapon. They wanted a confession. And in the final interview with John Carpenter that police did in, in 1978 in July, two weeks after the murder, they actually accused Carpenter of the murder and tried to get him to break and confess, and he never did. And with the lack of a confession, there was no way to place Carpenter at the murder scene positively. There's conjecture. There's the weird phone calls. There's all of that. Um, but there's no murder weapon. And the, and the prosecutors, both of those men, 
wanted a murder weapon or a confession, and they just didn't have it. So the case languished for 16 years until a new county attorney came into office, Rick Romley, who said, we're going to get to the bottom of this thing once and for all, and had these investigators look at the thing from the very beginning, fresh, new set of eyes, and see where the evidence led, and it led right back to John Carpenter again. And that's that's when they decided to finally put him on trial, and they thought they were going to get DNA to really cinch it. But the DNA they got back was inconclusive in the early 90s. They tested that blood found in Carpenter's car several times, three times for sure, and really a fourth, and we were maybe the fifth in 2016. It came back inconclusive. DNA evidence was not, DNA science was not where it is now. And that was my whole predicate for the book, Who Killed Bob Crane, was that maybe 20 years later, we could get an answer that they could not get back in the 90s. That's why we set out to do this. Because I, my feeling was if we could find the blood evidence from the original case and test it using 2016 DNA science, we could get a definitive answer that the blood in Carpenter's car was not only you know, Bob Crane's blood type, but was from Bob Crane. And that would have cinched it. And the jury foreman told me on many occasions, had we had that evidence, had we had the DNA, that would have been it. If we knew for sure the blood in his car was from Bob Crane, that would have been it. We would have convicted him in in the trial that went on in, the, in 94. So that's why we set out to do it. And, um, and it was a fascinating, fascinating journey. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, it's very interesting. And it says a lot about your own investigative abilities, your own doggedness, especially after things had, had sat dormant for so long. But I did want to point out that it was the investigation from the early 90s that, that determined the murder weapon, the camera tripod. That was a mystery in 1978. Can you tell us how investigators finally figured out that the murder weapon was likely a tripod? Well, this is the part that's interesting. Uh, the weapon was never found. Um, they searched the canal behind Crane's apartment. There's a there's a SRP irrigation canal, pretty big canal back there, and they thought, well, the killer probably dumped it there. Uh, they thought it was a tire iron or maybe a golf club. They weren't sure at the time of the murder what it might have been. They theorized it was a you know it was a it was a object a blunt object, but they thought tire iron golf club. They found all that stuff in the canal, by the way behind Crane's apartment, but they didn't feel they had it. They didn't feel they had the murder weapon. Um, they came up with the tripod theory because in the 90s, you know, when they when they started pouring over the videotapes, they discovered there was this missing tripod from Crane's apartment because the video showed clearly there was a second tripod in the apartment. And so the the investigator with Phoenix PD, he actually hit a clay bust of a head, a human head, that he constructed a clay bust and whacked it with one of these exact Quickset Junior tripods, and it deposited an exact copy. The blows on the clay deposited the exact size and shape of the two parallel horizontal marks on Crane's skull. And they thought, this is it. This is what did it. It was definitely the tripod. It matched perfectly. 
the head of the tripod has a plate on it, a metal plate. And they think that that metal plate was the actual part of the tripod that struck the head. And, um, and that, and that that is what, is what killed him. And so they came up with the tripod theory and I, and I think it really makes sense. You know, those marks on Crane's head are not a tire iron. That, that would look different. A golf club would look different. These are two very straight line marks on the skull. It crushed his skull, but it, it left two marks about an inch and a quarter long, two of them. And he was struck twice by, by a, by a really, by a heavy object that, you know, the first strike uh, put him out and the second strike deposited all the blood all over the wall and all over the uh, bedroom of Crane's apartment. Because the first strike, you don't get the blood pooling. You get the blood pooling after the first strike, and then the second strike sends the blood all over the place. And that's, that's what sent blood all over the wall. All of this is in, is in uh, my book, Who Killed Bob Crane? Also, I, you know, I should say it's on the website, Who Killed Bob Crane? And the reason I constructed that website, Eric, is because it's got all the crime scene video, the pictures, the evidence photographs. It's got all this stuff that augments the book. So you can look at it and go, oh, you can look at a diagram of the apartment and go, oh, that's where that was, or that's where they sat, and that's where the camera equipment was. It's really cool. It it, it kind of turns the book into a movie, if you will. So it's a good thing to, to, to uh, augment the book. That's great. Yeah. So one of the things in, in Carpenter's trial that his defense attorney did to try to cast doubt on Carpenter's involvement was to produce a witness who said that he saw someone else come out of Crane's place that morning looking very suspicious. Would you comment on that? Do you think that there is any validity to that eyewitness account at all? Well, it's interesting. You're talking about Lee Fetty, who was a moving van driver, um, who claims that he was in the Winfield uh, apartment parking lot, getting ready to move somebody into those apartments that morning, and claims that he lit a cigarette for a man about 5'9", five, 5'10", five, with um, pericomo O'Hare, as he described it, with gray in it, and even lit a cigarette. He said he saw the man coming out of Crane's apartment and actually not only saw him but chatted with him and lit a cigarette for him. Now, the investigators say that Fetty this is how they describe him, was a drunk and told tall tales. It's interesting. It's very interesting. But they did they did produce Lee Fetty at the trial, and Fetty, uh, Stephen Avila, uh, actually asked Fetty on the stand, is this the man you lit the cigarette for that you saw coming out of Bob Crane's apartment, pointing at John Carpenter at the defense table? And Fetty said, nope, that's not the man I saw indicating then there's another person out there, right, that may have been in Crane's apartment that killed him. Now, there's no other evidence of that except Lee Fetty's account. And the police went and interviewed Lee Fetty. In fact, one of them who went and interviewed him told me, he said, the guy's completely unreliable. He's a drunk. His, his story changes from one moment to the next. And Lee Fetty isn't reliable. So that's what... Uh, you know, that's what that's what the cops told me they, they found with Lee Fetty. So can I ask you, how did you come to meet Bob Crane Jr.? And, and how did you get involved in this to begin with? 
I interviewed uh, Bob Crane Jr. in 2015 at the station. He, he had a book out about his father, and I interviewed him about that, and I was kind of ambivalent about doing it. I kind of felt like everything that had been written about Crane had already been written, and, and I didn't I didn't know exactly why I was interviewing him, but, you know, it was interesting. And we, but when I talked to him, it was fascinating. And, and I came away from that interview with the profound feeling that here's a guy who had lost his father, who we love very much for all of Bob Crane's problems. He was a really great family man, believe it or not, aside from what he was doing on the side. When he was with his family, he was all in. And his son, you know, who's now, you know, 60 is, still has no answers about how his father died or what the heck happened in Scottsdale. You know, he, they put a man on trial and he was acquitted. And I just felt this profound sense that Bob Jr. had no answers. And I thought it was terribly unfair. And after the interview, it just kind of stuck with me. And I don't know how it happened, Eric, but at some point in the days after that interview, it dawned on me, hey, man, maybe that evidence, the blood evidence is still around somewhere. Maybe we can have it retested if we can find it, which turned out to be an odyssey to even find the stuff. And maybe we can get some answers for this family. And that's how it started. Interesting. Yeah, uh, you document your adventures, uh, trying not only to get the, the pertinent authorities interested in, in the case once more. I mean, it, it had been investigated gone cold, investigated again, gone, gone cold again. And much of that was dependent on internal interest in the case. And then you came along and reminded those authorities that DNA technology had dramatically improved since the 90s. And that acted as a catalyst to get the case re-examined once more. Exactly. And I went to the authorities. I went first to Bob Crane Jr. and said, I've got an idea. Are you sitting down? This was days after the interview. I had his number. I called him in L.A. And I said, I, I said, Bob, you know, I want I want to I want to run something by you. I want to I want to see if there's a chance that I could find this evidence and have it retested. And I, I as I explained in the book, Who Killed Bob Crane? There was silence on the other end of the phone. And I thought I had offended him. I thought maybe he was going to say, hey, you know, let sleeping dogs lie. We've been through enough. And he was ecstatic. He said, are you kidding? Are you serious? I said, yeah. I said, I'm, I'm dead serious. I want to see if we can find this evidence and if we can find it, maybe we can have it retested. And he was all in. And he, by the way, he wrote the foreword for my book, Who Killed Bob Crane, which I was honored. Because to me, that's kind of the good housekeeping seal of approval. He completely was on board with what we were trying to do, um, which is a forensic exploration into a cold case murder. That's really what it is. And I can tell you this, Eric, this is important that your listeners know this. Uh, Bodie Selmark Forensics told me they'd never done this with a reporter before, ever. And they said, Mr. Hook, we, we, we are dealing with prosecutors and defense attorneys and police. You know, we, we've never reopened a cold case with a reporter as the conduit. And that's what the whole Who Killed Bob Crane book is about, this odyssey, a forensic exploration of the Crane murder, you know, 20-some years later. And I had to get buy-in from everybody. The county attorney down here was amazing. They, You know, I explained what I wanted to do. And because John Carpenter had died in, in uh, 1998, 
the guy who had been put on trial wasn't around anymore. It was truly a cold case. There was no movement on it. And I said, I want to retest this blood. And once we found it and they, they allowed me to do it, which is unbelievable. And that's just because of relationships I have with these people down here. Cause I've, I've been working in, in Phoenix, um, since 1993. So those relationships are pretty strong. They trusted me to do it. And they handled, by the way, all the evidence. I never, I never got involved in the testing part. I was there witnessing the packaging of it. But their investigators did all that because we didn't want any questions about chain of custody or what happened to that stuff. And it went to Bodie and we got our result. It just wasn't the result everybody expected. And you did a big reveal on television. Uh, you had Bob Crane Jr. there. You had Carpenter's attorney there, right? Yeah, had the prosecutor in the case, had Barry Vassell there, who was the investigator in the case, uh, had uh, Michael Lake, who was a jury foreman there. And I think we all expected when we got the test back that it was going to be Bob Crane's blood in John Carpenter's car, case closed. I mean, what are the odds? The guy who's accused of his murder has the blood of the victim, not only type B blood, Bob Crane's blood in his car, his rental car, the day after the murder. Um, it, it would have cinched it for the jury foreman, but that's not what we got. We got a surprise, and it really is a quirky ending to the story. We'll let the readers discover that ending for themselves, <laughs> but, but it really is an interesting process. The conclusions that they reached based on the multiple samples that they were given to work with, the, the whole process is just fascinating. Yeah, and complicating it, Eric, was that the case was really old, um, and, the, and the DNA had been tested several times before. It would have been great to get a clean sample in, in you know, 1978 and test it with DNA, but DNA wasn't around then. So, you know, the jury, when they acquitted John Carpenter, they I said earlier that this was all during the O.J. Simpson case. They were hearing about this DNA thing all the time on the news at night. So they, the jury wanted it. They wanted DNA. They just didn't have it in 1994. And that's why I felt compelled in 2016 to have it retested and see if we could get an answer. And we got an answer. It's just not the answer anyone expected. Right, right. But John Carpenter's uh, lawyer seemed very satisfied. <laughs> uh, yes, I would say that for, for Stephen Avila, he loved what we found. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned your website uh your book is available through the regular channels yes amazon barnes and noble online bookstores is there anything that you'd like to add about your book and, and how listeners can get a hold of it yeah i i would just say that that it's it's a really true crime forensic story and it's also a story about journalism it's about you know, reaching dead ends and blind alleys and how you kind of work around it to try to get to, quote unquote, air quotes, the truth, whatever that is and whatever you find. And um, we uncovered some amazing things in this that, that had not been known. And, you know, this is why the, the cut line of the book, it's who killed Bob Crane. But the cut line is the final close up. And Eric, that is not a throwaway line. The final close up. Because as Bodie Selmark Forensics explained to me, when we did this test, we exhausted every bit of cellular material left 
in the case to try to get an answer. And so there is nothing left to test. And so we really are the final word on the Crane case. Unless this uh, mysterious man uh, who, who had come out of the hotel suddenly materialized at age 95, <laughs> which is very there unlikely. Always, there could always be a deathbed confession. Yes, um, that's right. Or the tripod being found, which would be interesting. And, I, and I've held out hope that that might happen because the tripod, the murder weapon, the alleged mur- murder weapon was never recovered. Yeah, yeah, right. And that would be an odd item to to pull out of a canal, a a tripod, right? It would draw attention. Yes, yes, that's right. And there's also, there's a a reservation, an Indian reservation right down the street from Crane's apartment, the Pima Maricopa uh, Reservation. It's only about a mile away. That, there's a lot of desolate land out there. Whoever the killer was, if it was a tripod, if it was John Carpenter, if it was someone else, there are countless places out there you could have buried it, the murder weapon, whatever it was, even if it wasn't a camera tripod. And so the possibilities are endless. Maybe some housing development going in will turn it up sometime. I don't know. But I hold out hope. Do you personally believe that John Carpenter had something to do with this? I personally do. Uh, and I explain in the book why I feel that way and why we got the the odd DNA results we got. There are a lot of reasons for it, and, I'll, and you'll see in the book. Uh, but there now, because of our findings, there is certainly a chance, uh, a, a chance I would put it about 6%, that someone other than John Carpenter killed Crane, someone unknown to anyone, to investigators, to all of us, except maybe Bob Crane, and obviously he's deceased. So... Yes, uh, I still go with the theory that that I believe Carpenter probably killed Crane, and I go into great detail on why I believe that. Uh, but the DNA the DNA results we got cast doubt on that, no doubt about it. Right, and basically what it means is that although it might have been someone else's blood in the car, that still doesn't disprove at all that Carpenter murdered Crane. It just adds another layer of mystery to it. It does. And, and you know, and I, I maybe am a little naive. Uh, this reminds me a little of the Kennedy assassination. There are so many stories. There's so much conjecture over what happened. The same thing applies to the Bob Crane murder. There are as many theories as you can count on what happened to him. And so I maybe naively thought, well, if we prove that it's Bob Crane's blood in John Carpenter's rental car, that this is over. It's case closed. I mean, the jury foreman told me as much. But as some journalists pointed out to me, they said, if you think this is going to end it, you're sadly mistaken because other people will say, well, Crane cut himself while he was in Carpenter's car, or had a nosebleed, or, you know, there, there are other reasons his blood might be in the car. Well, I, I guess that's true. There's no evidence of that. But you would have people putting that forward. And so, I don't know that this would have ever ended it, even if I'd gotten a different result. You know what's funny? I've owned cars for 30 years now, and I've never had blood in my car. It's odd, right? I know. I know. What a coincidence for Carpenter, if it was a coincidence. That's right. And that's what cops kept coming back to. What are the odds of, you know, Bob Crane's rare blood type being found in the car of his best friend who was in town? who disappears the morning of his murder, they, they said, you know, the odds of that are astronomical. So you've got to, you've got to just use common sense, right? 
But the DNA result we got definitely casts some doubt. Well, well, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much, John, for, for taking some time with me today to talk about this. You got it, Eric. I appreciate it. And I, I hope people read the book, Who Killed Bob Crane? I, I think you'll really enjoy it. And the reviews on Amazon have been great. Absolutely. Again, I've been speaking with John Hook, author of the book, Who Killed Bob Crane? The Final Close-Up. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.